The following audio is from Restoration Southside Church in Chattanooga, Tennessee, where our mission is to restore people and places through outreach, authenticity, and sacrifice. For more information, visit restorationsouthside.org. In the synagogue with the Jews and the devout persons, and in the marketplace every day with those who happen to be there. Some of the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers also conversed with him, and some said, What does this babbler wish to say? Others said, He seems to be a preacher of foreign divinities, because he was preaching Jesus and the resurrection. And they took him and brought him to the Areopagus, saying, May we know that this new teaching is that you are presenting. For you bring some strange things to our ears. We wish to know, therefore, what these things mean. Now all the Athenians and the foreigners who lived there would spend their time in nothing except telling or hearing something new. So Paul, standing in the midst of the Areopagus, said, Men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you are very religious, for I passed along and observed the objects of your worship. I found also an altar with this inscription, To the unknown God. What therefore you worship is unknown, this I proclaim to you. The God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands, as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place, that they should seek God, and perhaps feel their way toward him and find him. Yet he is actually not far from each one of us. For in him we live and move and have our being, as even some of your own poets have said, for we are indeed his offspring. Being then God's offspring, we ought not to think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and imagination of man. The times of ignorance God overlooked, But now he commands all people everywhere to repent, because he has fixed a day on which we will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. Now, when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some mocked, but others said, we will hear you again about this. So Paul went out from their midst, and some men joined him and believed, among whom also were Dionysus the Areopagite and a woman named Demarius and others with them. You may be seated. Thank you, Bethany. Well, good morning. My name is Ben, and I'm on staff here at Restoration. We are glad you're here. You could be anywhere this morning, and you're here. And so uh, if I haven't had a chance to meet you and say, hey, please find myself or Mark uh, or Sammy or any other smiling, happy face, um, to your left and your right. Uh, we love to know people here because you're worth knowing. And so um, thanks for being here. We are in the middle uh, and actually towards the end just about of our sermon series this fall in the book of Acts called Can I Get a Witness? And we're looking at the book of Acts, this historical book right after the Gospels, uh, the life, death, resurrection of Jesus. And we're seeing the spirit move in the, the lives of the people as the gospel goes out um, and the news of Jesus, the kingdom uh, is moving out. And so what what God does is he uses people in particular scenarios and situations and stations uh, to, in real time and in real ways, uh, share the word, share the news, share the news of Jesus, the kingdom of Jesus, the the victory of Jesus. And so uh, this morning, 
as we look at each of those vignettes through the book of Acts, it's always marked by witnessing. You witness to something. You're, you're, you're talking about something that's real to you, to people. And this morning, we're looking at a relevant witness, a, a relevant witness in Acts 17 with Paul in, in Athens. What he's doing is he's going into this kind of pagan setting and speaking of the faith that he has. Paul is doing that. He's relevantly sharing the gospel in a pagan setting. And so uh, that kind of gets and begs this question, how do you, if you're a Christian, you consider yourself a Christian, share your faith and hold that intention with the community you embody and are in? How do you connect your faith and your community? It's a great question to ask. I'm glad you asked. And so we'll explore that this morning. And if you're, a quick side note, if you are a Christian, this passage is so necessary because it shows you how to enter the world in which is your world, how to do it. And in such a way uh, that's it's really helpful and redemptive and good. And yet it's really troubling because in a way it's not canned or easy or boxed or plug and play. But what it does is actually invite you to, to do hard work, but worthy work. If you're a Christian, you need this story. That actually happened. And if you're not a Christian, actually, I would offer that you need Acts 17. You need Paul in Athens. Because if you are not a Christian, you were in the South. And so um, whether you're from here or not, um, you probably have what we'll call a memorable or distinct experience about some, someone sharing their faith with you if you're not a Christian. And what, what you need to know and see in this story is that the people Paul is talking to who don't share the faith he shares and has, he injects them with value that they don't even know they have. And so if you're not a Christian, what this story should do to you is inject you with value because you're endowed with it. You have a dignity. And that shapes everything Paul does. So as we look at the relevant witness that Paul offers, we'll, we'll see that this key distinct kind of phrase at play. That, that Paul is moved by people, therefore he moves toward people. He's moved by people, therefore he moves toward people. And so that's what a relevant witness looks like. And we'll see three things. We'll see first the purpose of, the rel- of a relevant witness, the plan of a relevant witness, and the person of a relevant witness. Alliteration, you're welcome. Got to give me a win when I can. Purpose, plan, person. With that in mind... Uh, Let's go to the same God that Paul is sharing with the Athenians and the same God that actually um, moves within our midst right even now. Uh, He'll meet us and change us. Let's go together to him. King Jesus, we come to you, and as we look at your word, uh, would you you do the things that even our our bodies want even in this season? We wake up cold. We wake up lagging even. We wake up wanting to be warmed and safe, and and, and cozy, and connected. Our bodies want those things. And so, Lord, that tells us a story, even about the deep longings of our heart, that we want to be warmed. When we feel the frigidness, and the coldness, and the staleness, and the stillness, would you, by the power of your Spirit, warm us to the truth of who Jesus is, and that he's for us, and he's with us, these things can feel so distant, uh, whether we, we believe it in our heart of hearts or we're struggling or we're confused or we doubt it with everything in our being. Whatever it may be, would you, by the power of your Spirit, meet us this very day in this very room and warm us to who you are. We pray in your name, Jesus.
Amen. So first we see the purpose of a relevant witness, the purpose of a relevant witness. Now, now Paul in Acts 8 and 9, he uh, is converted. He goes from killing Christians, being a persecutor of Christianity, uh, to being a proponent of it, to being a champion of it, being a missionary that goes out along this known world, especially in the Roman Empire, and shares the gospel and the news of Jesus. And here we see that uh, it begins with he is waiting for his friends in the city of Athens in Greece. He's waiting for Timothy and Silas, his compadres, to meet him there so they can go and continue to do this missionary journey and go out. So as he's sitting there and waiting, as you and I would probably do, we would just whip out that iPhone we have and just start doing nothing with it. And so as he's waiting, what what does Paul do? He begins to walk around this city. He walks around Athens and it says in verse 16, it begins and says, now while Paul was still waiting for them, Timothy and Silas, at Athens, his spirit was provoked within him as he saw that the idol, the city was full of idols. The spirit was provoked within him as he saw that the city was full of idols. What we see is that Paul has this stirring inside of him, this, this, this provoking inside of him, this thing that's unsettling inside of him because of what he sees. What does he see? He sees idols. Now, we just said this whole entire story is how you engage the world around you with your faith in mind. Paul is disturbed and provoked by the idols around. This is almost the ball is set on the tee for him to go and just shake people with the truth and wag his finger at them. And yet that's not what he does. Because Paul actually sees the idols and the purpose of a relevant witness is quickly shown because he doesn't directly go at the idols. He doesn't go to people and say, and and wag his finger and say, hey, you've been worshiping wrong. You're doing this wrong. I'm here to set you straight. That's not what he does. Because what we see actually is that he assumes something in the uh, the people around him, in the people of Athens, and it's that they're endowed with the dignity and therefore he will engage them. Yes, he will talk about the idols that are very present and that provoke him. And yet, what does he do? He talks to people, not at them. He talks about this false worship, but he does so because he knows what is at stake, the people of the city. Everything he will do with a relevant witness is driven by and and has this purpose of the people of Athens. If you are like me, you watch this movie at a way too young of an age, or at the right age, maybe, if you're lucky, uh, The Wizard of Oz. Uh, I say or too early because there's flying monkeys and it's scary. It's meant to be a horror film, a little fun fact, but it's, it's there you go. The so Wizard of Oz, I'm, I'm going to assume that you know it, but uh, all the details of it, but Dorothy, this Kansas girl um, in the 1930s, she lives a, a a rougher, disenchanting life. This twister takes her home, places it in Oz. She opens the door. She's in Oz. She follows the yellow brick road. She kills a witch. She realizes there's no Oz. The man behind the curtain. There's no place like home. Taps her feet. Goes back home. Story's over. So in The Wizard of Oz, what, what, what is so clarifying for her, the, the, the emphasis of the movie is not for her to realize I'm supposed to have all these friends and this companion on the Celebic Road. It's not for her to realize there is no man behind the curtain. It's not for her to even realize and to tap her feet uh, so she can get back home. The thing 
the thrust of the movie is something that's never stated. It's just it's it's deep in the in the fibers of it, and it shapes the movie. And it's that when she begins the film in Kansas in this sepia font, this black and white font, and then she the twister takes her to Oz. And she opens the door, and it is full of color. Every color of the rainbow and every every kind of shade is there. And it's bright, and it's bursting with, with, with flavor. She sees this land of Oz that's full of color. And then at the very end of the movie, she goes back to Kansas. There's no place like home. And it's still sepia, and it's still black and white. Why is the shades of the color, in my opinion the whole theme of the movie and the story. It's because she begins in this black and white. She experiences this color and that color and that experience of Oz then shapes the black and white world she goes back to. Put it simply, she can't unsee the color she's seen as she enters back into her plain world. She acts as if she's informed as she enters into Kansas Oz informs Kansas, and that's the very thing that's true of Paul in this story. Paul is informed in Athens by the Damascus Road experience he had as he's converted. What we see here is that Paul has the purpose of the relevant witness, and it's not to shake people straight with truth and right thought. It's to look at people the way Jesus looks at them. That's the purpose of a relevant witness. So if you are a Christian, that is the task. If you are not a Christian and you've experienced something that is other than that, I would let you know that that really is not very beautiful. The task and the purpose of a relevant witness is to see people just like God sees them. And that's how Paul has a heart that's shaped by God. It's truly changed by God. He sees people as God sees them. He knows the fact, he's moved, he's he's provoked by the fact there are lost people in Athens. And I know a God who would long to make them his. Just like it says in Jonah, the Old Testament book, God says of the people of Nineveh, my heart is for them because they don't know their left hand from their right. And that's what we see in the person of Jesus. He's moved by people. And in Mark 6, Jesus is teaching and he's doing miracles and he's going all about his ministry. And it says he's tired. And so in Mark 6, it says this. It says, Jesus said to them, his disciples, come with me by yourselves to a quiet place and get some rest. So they went away by themselves in a boat to a solitary place. But many who saw them leaving recognized them and and ran on foot from all the towns and got there ahead of them. And when Jesus landed and saw a large crowd, he had compassion on them. Because they were like a sheep without a shepherd. So he began teaching them many things. And Jesus looks at the people, and what does he feel? What, what happens in him? He's moved with compassion for them. Paul goes into Athens, and he sees the people who are lost and worshiping at these altars they set, they set up. And what does he do? He's provoked by the altars, but he's, he's provoked for them. The purpose of a witness is always to see the things in which Jesus sees people by. 
seeing like Jesus sees them. And Paul does it in such a powerful way because he himself knows just even months ago, I was exactly where you were. My idolatry wasn't in paganism. My idolatry was in religiosity, which is why we're doing a whole sermon series in January for uh, about irreligion and religion and the gospel. Small little plug. He's saying, I'm after you because I have a changed heart. And this changed heart of mine is a, f- a factory of idols. And for me, it was religiosity. For you, it was paganism. But I'm here to tell you about a God that actually moves towards us in our idolatry and changes us. That's the purpose of a relevant witness, knowing that a God has changed him because Paul never got over the fact that he was saved. And that's the invitation of Christianity. Move into the world and never get over the fact that God has found you and changed you. If that's the purpose, how does Paul do it? What's the plan of it? How does he, in a real time, in a contextual connecting way, have the plan of a relevant witness? And it's not canned at all. It's not boxy. It's not plug and play. It's not these blueprints. What we see that this plan of a relevant witness is this. That Paul curiously looks at the surface so that he can graciously look at the heart. That Paul curiously looks at the surface, the, the, the things around him, so he can graciously look at the heart. So how does he curiously look at the surface? What it says is that Paul walks around the city of Athens. He walks through the city. He walks the same streets, and he's not in this high ivory tower. He, he, he shares the same place in time with the people who don't think like him. He's in their world. He's on their terms. He's seeing their economy. It says that he uh, it goes, as he's in Athens, he goes to the synagogue and he t- talks about Jesus and, and have this, this conversation. But then it says he goes into the marketplace. Now, this is not like the Chattanooga Market by Finley Stadium. This marketplace is uh, the place because Athens is the it city. It is the... Uh, the financial world of New York City, it is the, um, the, the, the fandom and drama and arts of L.A. It's the power, the political place of D.C. It's the hot chicken of Nashville. It is the it, of, it's the it city of every sector. And there's not these districts here, there, and everywhere. All those places, all those cultural brokers meet in one place, the marketplace. Where does Paul go? The marketplace. He goes to them in their place, on their terms, and he meets them. And long before he opens his word and shares the gospel, he sees their world. You have to curiously look at the surface. When you want to have a relevant witness, you have to curiously look at the surface, and you'll see much. You'll make much of the world around you. As you look at the surface and as you enter into someone's world, it's important also to know your intentions and your own heart. My daughter, our oldest daughter is three and a half, um, and we've been kind of in this um, Disney tear of, of looking and watching old movies on Disney+. Plus. And what we're doing uh, right now this past week's movie uh, that we watched 75% of every day was um, Pocahontas. And so uh, you also remember when you watch movies, you have to have your finger on the fast forward button. Um, And so as we're watching Pocahontas, which I do want to say the caveat of it has aged poorly for all the right reasons. 
But Pocahontas tells the story of the men of the Virginia Company, and they're going for God and for glory and for gold into this new world. And they're going to this new world, and they have uh, two kind of, two things happen. We see the, the Virginia Company men with that intent at their worst and their best. At their best, they are set out to this new world to say, uh, indigenous people, Native Americans, you are to think like us, act like us, uh, talk like us, behave like us. They're basically coming into this new world and saying, we are culturally superior. They come in with this cultural superiority at their best. Now, at their worst, what we see is, if you don't think like us, talk like us, behave like us, we will take you out. Racial superiority. As they enter into a land and a place and a culture that is not theirs, they're marked by every shade of superiority. And so often, certainly in the West, certainly in the South, those ideals are taken up when we share the gospel into the culture and the place we have found ourselves. Either think like us, talk like us, behave like us, and if you don't, you're out. The superiority, imposing yourself and your ideals and your way of life upon others, and if they don't meet the match, they're out. And yet Paul gives us a more, a beautiful, better story and, and an opportunity and an example here. Because in it we see that the relevant witness curiously looks at the surface of the city that you're entering into, the place you're entering into, the people you're entering into, on this, in a congenial, informed way, on their terms. Long before he opened his mouth, he looked at the city around him. He curiously looked at the city. And the thing about curiosity is that it requires much of you. It makes you get out of your own way. It says, my boxes may be a little small. That the things I've normalized actually may not be all that normal. You have to get out of your own way to engage others in a curious manner. The relevant witness curiously looks at the surface so that it can graciously look at the heart. Graciously Look at the heart. Uh, Tim Keller wrote a book all about this one kind of this part of pa- the, the passage we're looking at. And it's called um, uh, uh, Center Church. And in this book, Center Church, he says this. He says, Paul applies the gospel to confront and to complete each society's baseline cultural narrative. Confront and complete. Now, if it's just this confrontation of the culture it finds itself in, it's really superior, as we've just said. And if it's just this kind of um, completion, then all of a sudden you may not have been able to do all the homework that gets you there. You don't really debunk idols that are in place. But real contextualization that that Tim Keller says Paul does in this passage is that he confronts and completes the baseline cultural narrative of the city it enters into compassionately confronts, hey, here's what Paul says, hey, men of Athens, I see you're religious. I've I've walked around your city and I've noticed there are these, I've noticed things. I'm going to ground my thoughts and experience in real time. 
I see you're religious. I see these altars to unknown gods. I, I've even quoted your philosophers. I know the things you believe and your poets that you believe. I'm going to actually give you your, your culture enough clout because it does have this. And say, so even your culture says this. And then he goes on to complete it and say, you, you worship an unknown God. You have an altar to an unknown God, and I'm here to tell you about a God that's real. I know you have a heart for worship and a longing for worship. I'm here to tell you about this God, this God who actually knows all of history, and he's placed you in it for a purpose and a time, and you're not, he says you're not far from it. You're not far from him. Confront and complete. And as he does those things, I wouldn't say, therefore, you go do it. I wouldn't say do that unless I tell you this. It's an important paradigm because Paul does not confront or complete this baseline cultural narrative in a way that says, you are bad, I am good. You are dirty, I am holy. What he does is not point a finger at them. What he does actually in such a powerful way is having this understood paradigm. He's saying, I see you as... Athenians, as someone who are marked with a disordered love. I see you, there's this, there's this off worship, and I want to invite you into a way that you order your loves in a way that's true worship. He's not talking at them, he's talking at the things they have set their affections upon. He doesn't talk about depravity, he talks about disordered loves. He says, I'm not going to go after your culture. I'm going to go through your culture to get to you. He actually sees the beauty in culture enough to go through it to get to the people who are setting up idols in it. And friends, that's the same task we have. He says, men of Athens, I see your altars and I see your longing for worship. Let me tell you something worth worshiping. I see your world and your city. Therefore, I will enter into it and offer up graciously, things in which your heart may be putting up and erecting. So for you and I, what would Paul say in the city of Chattanooga? And get, it can, this can get slippery fast. What would Paul say? That's the homework you're supposed to do. Let me wet your whistle. Men and women of Chattanooga, I see your amazing craft breweries. I see your coffee shops. I see your independent businesses. I see the ways in which actually through these niche markets that are oh so good and tasty that you might want to find this new found identity. Uh, identity and belonging that you yourself have crafted. People, men and women of Chattanooga, I see your love of working from home. So, and yes, your love of nature to be out and about in 10 minutes from a computer on Zoom meeting to in the middle of the woods by yourself, enjoying the creation around you. And those are great things. But, but may it be that you, you actually just love freedom so much. And that lifestyle offers you freedom because you don't like constraints. Men and women of Chattanooga, there are many zip codes here and many neighborhoods with personalities and characters. Would it be maybe that there's a personal clout that comes with living in a place and not another place? The plan of a relevant witness is observing the place around you so that you can get to the heart of the people. Curiously looking at the surface so you can graciously look at the heart. That's this 
plan. That's how it works, and that's what he's inviting us into. But it's all because of this last idea, the person of, of a relevant witness, the person of a relevant witness. As Paul is relevantly relating to people, he's not there to tell them, hey, look how smart I am. I know you're poets. I'm well read. He's not there to say that, though he is smart. He's not there to say, hey, I'm eloquent. Look at how well I can uh, structure a, a sermon in a, in a offering up oratorily, though he does. And he's not here to say, I'm humble. Look how humble I am, though he is humble. Paul is there to show them not just truths about Jesus, but the person of Jesus. He's here to get them to the person of Jesus. And as Tim Keller says in Center Church, he says, sound contextualization shows people how the plot lines of the stories of their life can only find a happy ending in Christ. How your plot line and my plot line, no matter who we are, no matter what culture we find ourselves in, can only find its happy ending in the person of Christ, in the person of Jesus. And that's why Jesus is the person who is the, of a relevant witness. He's a person of relevance. Now, I want to quickly say something that's very known. And I get a nod to this, give a nod to this. Um, if you look at the person of Jesus, he's a person of relevance, and yet he is so irrelevant. If you get your bingo card out of the characteristics that are true of your life, your culture, your demographic, your 23andMe, um, is, that, is that what it's called? Yeah. Where you spit in a jar and you send it to some people and they tell you everything about your life and then you, you're fully actualized. <laughs> if you get out your bingo card of the makeup of your, of your story and your history and your culture, it probably doesn't say that you live... 2,000 years ago in the nation of Israel that's Roman occupied and you're an unmarried celibate Jewish carpenter. Anybody out there? There's no, no, no one's saying bingo to that because it's so irrelevant. Why is Jesus the person of relevance? He's the person of relevance because he came in a way that no one else has. He came in a way that, that his heart was broken. He came in a way that, that shared our bones, that shared our blood, that shared our flesh. He shared our body. And there's no, across every single time and history and culture, there's no common thread than the body. Friends, Jesus came. That's why we celebrate Christmas. He came in a body. Nothing more relevant than that. He shared our frailties, he shared our, our struggles, and yet was perfect. He, in his perfection, he suffered for us. And Paul here is saying, this Jesus came in a body, and he actually had his resurrection. And the point of the resurrection actually is the things that people in Athens will join him in or, or reject him for. Mark, this week, as we were talking about this passage, he, he's a classics major from the Harvard of the South, Ole Miss. And so, being the classics major of the Harvard of the South, Ole Miss, he said Epicureans and Stoics were the people in Paul's audience. The Epicureans said this, live it up. That the material world is a place that is the wellspring of sensuality. Live it up. Epicureans. The Stoics, on the other hand, said, suck it up. Conceal, don't feel. That's so I've heard. And so the, the Stoics say, 
suck it up. Put your head down. The physical world is a bad place. Those are the spectrum of people Paul is talking to, and he says, I'm here to tell you the physical world is a good place. And I'm here to tell you God has given a nod to the physical world. God has given a nod to your city that's full of idols that is a beautiful place. He's here to say the resurrection gives a fulfillment to the things you want out of your city, and it gives you fulfillment to say, go into your city and love it to life. N.T. Wright says this about this resurrection that says, go into your city. He says, Jesus' resurrection is the beginning of God's new project, not to snatch people away from earth to heaven, but to, ha- to colonize earth with the life of heaven. That, after all, is what the Lord's prayer is about. Paul is telling his people and us, in the message, in the thrust of his sermon, the resurrection says your body matters because it will rise. The resurrection says your city matters, Chattanooga matters, because it will be here in eternity in the new heavens and the new earth because heaven comes down, we don't go up to heaven. And it says your jobs matter, therefore bring order where there's disorder, just like God did in creation. It's injecting value into everything that's physical that says, go into your world and give life to it. Because the resurrection does not say, and Paul does not embody, nor should we embody, dirty culture, dirty city, dirty people, get away from them. It actually says the very opposite. It says, I'm here to enter into your world, see what your world is like, speak into it in a way, all because Jesus has done that for us. That's what the incarnation is. That's what Christmas is. That's what the resurrection is. You go into a city, you don't run away from it. You go into a culture, you don't name it or shame it or call it bad. Friends, like the Athenians, for us, the resurrection is to tear down our false beliefs and constructs and build up beautiful ones. If you're a Christian, you can't have a Christianity that's anything other than that. And if you are not a Christian, you can't accept a Christianity that's anything other than that. In Acts 17, Paul is telling us there is meaning in the ordinary. There's meaning in the idolatry. And we're supposed to be invited into it as the Holy Spirit is at work in our city to say, I'm here not to shake my finger at you, but to enter in through your city to get to your heart because God has entered through our body, through our experience to get to our heart. The places that are factories of idols to change us from the core and then love the city to life. That's our God who wants to invite us to that journey. Let's pray. Lord, when we hear a story like this, would we not be riddled with homework to do or tasks to take up that may even run contrary to how we're even wired and built? When we hear a story like this, would we be reminded that you're on the move, that the snow is melting and spring is coming and you invite us on that journey 
And so uh, as we as we're on that journey with you, uh, entering into people's lives, seeing the culture around us that is marked with deep beauty that you are writing a story in, Jesus, would you remind us before we even lift a finger that we are like the people of Athens And yet you're a God who enters into our story. Uh, Paul, Paul is just a small snapshot of, the, of you, Jesus. Someone who's entered our world and not marked us with shame or societally put us in a place where we have to make a decision right now. But you're a God who enters into our world so we can actually know there's a better story. Our disordered loves can have order and fullness. May all this occur because you're moving our life and our hearts. Holy Spirit, we pray in your name, Christ. Amen. Our disordered loves can have order and fullness. May all this occur because you're moving our life and our hearts. Holy Spirit, we pray in your name, Christ. Amen.